Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today we have another special sponsored episode. Woohoo! This one is courtesy of Lisa, but it is dedicated to Lisa's daughter, Kara, who is just finishing up, or maybe at this point has finished, her master's degree in art history. So, Kara, your mom wanted us to say something that, and I quote, wouldn't be too smooshy so she wouldn't embarrass you. And that's very nice and a lovely thing for a mom to do. But we are under no such familiar restrictions, so we want to embarrass the heck out of you by saying congratulations. Your family is super duper proud of you, your mom, your sister, and your dad, and they love you a lot. And Amber and I are proud of you, too. And you're great. Yeah. Oh, we should have a mom cast. But way to go Kara and way to become one degree cooler um and we worked with your mom so this is like <laughs> some inside baseball for everyone else but Kara nobody else listened um we worked with your mom to figure out a topic that you'd really enjoy and we landed on something that we think will make for a really cool episode um and I am also very excited about this it's uh, the archaeology of revolt protest and resistance which is why this episode is completely revolting so Amber, why don't you start us off since this first story comes from your beloved Appalachia? Yeah, yeah. And it's the perfect time of year for it to happen because this past week um, was May 1st, was May Day, um, which is International Workers' Day. And so that's something that is brought to bear on the Battle of Blair Mountain. Yes. Yeah, which is um, in Logan County, West Virginia. Um, And so... I'm going to start off with a very flowery intro to a, a piece from mm-hmm. Archaeology Magazine. Mm-hmm. It's, very, it's <laughs> flowery, just like, just like bread and roses. Yep. White Trace Branch is a narrow wooded valley near the base of Blair Mountain, 50 miles south of Charleston, West Virginia. Today, only the grind of trucks downshifting on a nearby road <laughs> breaks its arboreal hum. But in 1921... <laughs> The sound was replaced by the rattle of machine guns and the pop-pop of squirrel rifles when the valley was just one corner of a battlefield sprawling across 10 miles of ridgeline. In late summer of that year, a force of striking coal miners crept through this hollow, dodging fire from anti-union forces stationed above. The Battle of Blair Mountain, as it is called, involved more than 10,000 men and was the country's largest civil conflict apart from the Civil War. Um, Though the battle is little known outside of Union and historian circles, it was a key moment for the American labor movement. So um, this happened in 1921, and for a long time, most people thought that it was just kind of lost to history. Um, And 
but there still remains of that fight, which is mostly in the form of fired bullets and spent shells. And they're scattered around Spruce Fork Ridge. Um, and Blair Mountain is just one peak of Spruce Fork Ridge. So in um, Appalachia, if you look at sort of, if you look at a topographical map, you see that it's not so much like mountains as it is kind of wrinkles in the landscape. It's like a Ruffles potato chip. Yeah. And so you have this. Not sponsored. Nope. And so you have, <laughs> uh, and so Spruce Fork Ridge is one of them, and Blair Mountain is one of those mountain peaks. Um, and so it's barely concealed by 90 years of forest litter. Um, like leaves, not like plants. leaves. Yeah, not like, yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So uh, these munitions appear in telling patterns a concentration here, a trail there, like an ant colony winding through places such as White Trace Branch. Baldwin Fork and Crooked Creek Gap. In one place, five 32 caliber pistol shells rest together, likely marking the spot where a striking miner once stood. Details of the fight are sketchy. The miners were secretive and the coal companies cagey. But early archaeological study has begun to lead to a reevaluation of the battle and the success of the miners' forces. However, outside of a few public roads and paths, such as the one through White Trace Branch, archaeologists are not really allowed to enter most of the battlefield like what the land the battlefield was on because a lot of that property is owned by coal companies now um and the mountain itself isn't doing too hot um because blair mountain like many of the other mountains in the southern coal fields has coal in it and so the battlefield itself lies within several concessions for the form of surface mining known as mountaintop removal um, which some people may have heard of, uh, but mountaintop removal is pretty straightforward in which the peak, the top of the mountain is sheared off to expose the coal beneath. So rather than in deep mining where you dig down to get to the coal, you just take everything off and expose the coal and then you deposit it in the valley next to it, which is exactly as bad as it sounds like it could be for both humans and the environment. Um, and why are they doing this? Uh, because mountaintop removal mining is, um, as Archaeology Magazine put it, more productive and profitable uh, than traditional deep mining because you, it takes fewer workers, it takes less time, um, and it's less ex there's less overhead cost, as it were involved monetarily in, yeah uh yes uh, yeah for the coal from the coal company's perspective um less overhead costs um however mountaintop removal is widely criticized for its impact on the environment and local living conditions um and at blair mountain in particular it's earned a few more vocal components including someone that i went to school with um and have had beers with a few times so uh not this person harvard ayers who is a professor emeritus at appalachian state say, university like, you have beers with harvard ayers no <laughs> but um so he was at appalachian state um which is in north carolina not west virginia um and he he collaborated with and then eventually handed over um excavation and analysis of the battlefield at blair mountain to brandon nida who um is i think he's from logan county so he's from there and he's um he got his phd from uc berkeley and so we were there um at the same time for a bit 
And so NIDA and Ayers conducted statistical analyses of the ammunition to distinguish miner sites. So those with a diverse range of shells from defender sites where there's more consistency. At one site, a mile northwest of Crooked Creek Gap, um, an unusual concentration of spent bullets from both sides of the conflict is evidence of close quarters fighting. Other sites show the miners were coming up five or six uh, hollows or creeks at once. So a hollow is a is a holler. It's a it's a really <laughs> narrow valley. Other places might call them like canyons or something. It's a similar geographical feature. Just a smallish ravine. Yeah, yeah, um, and. So it's a coordinated effort if, if, and it's not like they had like cell phones or walkie talkies or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they were, so the miners were coming up five or six hollers or creeks at once, uh, which are tactical details that aren't documented anywhere else. Um, it's possible that the miners were far more coordinated and successful than previously thought um, because they were deliberately misrepresented. Um, that was my editorial. Um, so Ayers, Harvard Ayers, Professor Emeritus at Appalachian State University, uh, said <laughs> it would be an archaeologist's dream to be able to go up there with all this good preservation. You could learn so much about the strategic aspects, the much more sophisticated approach the miners had in terms of coming at the defenders from multiple directions. So you have the miners and you have the defenders and the defenders are defending the coal company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the defenders were the ones attacking. So it's a little hard to follow um so um brandon nida's work was uh his dissertation was concentrated on continuing the effort to reconstruct the actual events of the battle and the social context um and he's he was and i'm pretty sure still is really involved in organizing um so he was kind of at the center of the movement to protest the mining of Blair Mountain and just mountaintop removal in general. Um, and so his work looked at folk analyzing bullets, reconstructing sight lines, um, which was an effort complicated by both the variety of bullets and 90 years of trees growing up um, <laughs> and seeking evidence of the strikers tent colonies. He's also, he also did excavation at the Whipple store, which was, um, archaeology magazine describes as a fortress like company store um, and so he was working there the summer he was excavating there um, after I was in school there because I had talked about joining him on the site there um, and just as a little bit of context for folks that um, might not have learned about the, the the mine wars to the degree that I did growing up um, I certainly didn't. Yeah. So the strikers were in tent colonies. So he said, looking at the strikers' tent colonies, um, they were in tent colonies because they were evicted from their homes because they didn't own their homes. The coal company did. So they lived. So the miners. So if you would have like the, you would have a family that had a father and probably the older, the sons who were like early teens and up, they would be working in the coal mines. And then uh, the mother and then any other small children or um, or daughters would live in this house, but they didn't own anything. So they were there in company provided housing. And when they went on strike, they were kicked out. And so they, they were living, they, they were refugee communities because they were evicted from where they had lived. Um, and the Whipple store, the company store, um, was the only place that they could buy anything because they weren't paid in U.S. dollars. They were paid in scrip. And scrip was a voucher system that um, 
where you were paid for the the weight of the coal you mined, not the hours you worked or any other metric. Ugh. So you were paid for the weight. Um, and so you you would give scrip to pay for necessities. So anything you needed to eat or to drink or to like clean your house with or wear, you bought at the company store. And um, these items were not at fair market value. They were marked up because they controlled the market. Um, And so that's why people were in that. They were in those circumstances. Um, And after decades of increasingly deadly and exploitative labor practices, which not the least of which is the fact that you were paid for the weight. So you... It's right. It's not fair. Yeah. So it makes um, so it makes sense that if you can, you will work faster, work harder, have more people in your household working in order to try to live, try to because you're not going to get ahead. You're not going to get ahead because you can't save up money because you're not being paid money. Um, and so after decades of this, the miners organized and they were met from resistance in the form of murder by private detectives. So these are the Baldwin um, Feltz Detective Agency, um, which is like an old timey domestic Blackwater. Like they were just like mercenary types that were hired by the coal companies. Um, and then later, President Warren Harding threatened to send in the literal military to stop this this protest. Um, and while that was avoiding, the National Guard did come in and some and private planes. So the the so some leftover bombs from World War One were dropped around where um, the organized miners organizing miners were and where their families were in tents. And um, this was yeah. So this was going on um, when like frost starts coming around so this is like in the fall that this is happening um and federal troops came as the federal troops came in they retreated because they realized that they were all going to die because like from exposure no no or bombs yeah yeah because like the the national guard was coming in um and um so after the battle of blair mountain 985 miners were indicted um, and the vast majority of them served prison time for murder, conspiracy to commit murder, accessory to murder and treason against the state of West Virginia. Like these are the crimes that they committed in the eyes of the law for, for trying to be paid fairly for their work. So this is why like the May Day thing, like the, like the Labor Day right. thing is important here. Um, and so in 2018, an article in West Virginia History, a journal of regional studies, um, entitled, What Did the Miners See? Archaeology, Deep Mapping, and the Battle of Blair Mountain. Uh, Brandon Nida and his colleagues shared some of the findings from his dissertation research. Um, among other things, uh, he concludes that this is taken from the abstract of that. Uh, and I'll include it in the show notes so folks can read it because it's it's really great, really great work. Um, Among other things, he concludes that previous accounts have overestimated the number of rounds fired in the battle, that less than half the marchers reached the front lines and participated in the shooting, and that the coal operators' forces had more access to military weapons. 
Perhaps his oh. most significant finding is that the miners' army used effective military strategies and was in the process of breaking through the line of the, quote, Logan defenders, end quote. So those are the folks that the they were uh, company. They were strike breakers. Um, so and they were people hired by the coal companies um, and that were just kind of sent. They were installed there um, to work at Crooked Creek. Crooked Creek Gap when the U.S. Army regiments arrived to the battle. So the U.S. military showed up and they were like, well, I think we lost. Um, and it was um, it was a, a tactical victory for the coal companies and the U.S. military um, and not the folks that were tremendously brave. Fighting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so in, in the article, they, they looked at possibilities presented by new methodology of deep mapping, which combines um, GIS, so geographic information systems, uh, with a... We'll talk about that later on. Yeah. With a humanistic analysis that embraces multiple subjectivities and complex realities. So that's looking at sort of the... Um, there are many different realities in issues of labor history and lived experience and like the very intersectional nature of this kind of work. And so, and, and in conflict in general, yeah, you know, you yeah. And so um, the, the goes on to say by creating deep maps of the battle of Blair mountain using three-dimensional mapping, we would have better understanding of what the miners saw on those bloody days in 1921. Um, so here in the U S there's a, uh, there's a history of using archeology span and grassroots activism um, at Blair Mountain, the two can seem very much inextricable, even as the activism sometimes appear to hamper archaeological research. But um, in that archaeology magazine piece, uh, Brandon Knight is quoted as saying, quote, one of the problems that we have now is that so much of our time and energy is built around preserving the mountain and making sure that it's not blasted, that the capacity isn't there for doing a lot of in-depth research. Am I going to analyze bullets or go to this permit hearing? Um, and so it is... Um, I, I mean, it's it's a little ironic, and it's also very poignant that at the site of a historic and bloody labor protest, there is still ongoing protest and activism um, grinding on, and it's still based around coal. It's based around coal, its extraction, the poor regulation thereof, and the many, many, many public health crises that have resulted in the southern coal fields. Um, and some of this is nodded to in the Netflix documentary that just came out this week, Knock Down the House. That I saw which is, that that came out. Yeah. yeah. And so um, um, AOC is is because she won. So like she's definitely like a big part of the push. But one of the other candidates that's, is Paula Jean Swearingen. Cortez. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, OK. OK. And so one of the other candidates featured in that is Paula Jean Swearingen, who um, is from the Southern Coalfields and a lot of the work that she has done um, in her career up to and including her Senate run um, deals with that. So if you see, if, if anybody watches that documentary, you'll see some of that, but also specifically, if you'd like to learn more about this period of us and Appalachian history, um, which is known as the mine wars, I recommend that you visit the West Virginia mine wars museum in Maitland, West Virginia. So you can either, when you, what? <laughs> when you texted me about that and you used the word Maitland, I was in my head, I was like, ah, oh, yes, Matawan. Yeah, it, and then, and then I heard the woman talking. Yeah. I was like, oh no, I was wrong. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> 
you can go in person to Matewan. You can go visit it. Um, or you can go to their website, which is so good. Um, and so it's wvminewars.com and it'll be in our show notes, but they've really thrived under donor support and, um, they're, they're in a big push for, because the 100 year anniversary of, um, so there was a massacre in Matewan. That's where that happened. Um, and also they've received, um, support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, and so in addition to the museum itself, um, and the educational programs that they do, they also have resources for educators for elementary, middle, and high school students learning about labor history and U.S. history. And so they have lesson plans and a reading list and all that. And it's really, really good. Um, also, I'll include in a show, the video um, in the show notes that I sent to Anna earlier today uh, <laughs> that explains a little bit more about Matewan, its history, and the disproportionately more famous Hatfields and McCoys. Hi, Megan and Robbie. Are, are they Hatfields and or McCoys? Um, yeah. May, um, Robbie married into West Virginia royalty. Uh, Meg's, wow. Yeah. Meg is, is a Hatfield. Um, and so all of this is narrated by a hostess with the most mellifluous voice. She has the best accent and I love it's it. Great. Yeah. And, and yeah, so she's great. Um, and if neither museums nor videos work for you, um, the mind wars are also very masterfully captured in fiction in the novel Storming Heaven by Denise Giardina, um, which I also like last week I learned is now a musical, which I will probably go see and weep. Um, but have fun doing yeah. that. <laughs> but um, I'll have links to all of those things uh, because it is it's it's really significant and like if you're listening to yeah. this show on a weekend you and you and if you're part of the middle class in the u.s like these guys are part of the reason why that is the case right you have you have these people to thank yeah in part. so like check it out yeah that was really good but oh thanks i didn't cry either <laughs> that was also really I good <laughs> i did that earlier oh boy um, I just well. really, really love labor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, we're going to hop back quite a bit farther in history now for um, something that is, you know, definitely not as recent, but certainly um, poignant and definitely used as as many of these sort of historical protests or revolts are as as a tool for um, modern day nationalism or sort of a rallying point for a particular group of people. And in this case, Israeli nationalism, uh, because we're talking about the siege of Masada. So Masada is... Uh, well, it's been a lot of things, but it is a fortress on a high plateau in uh, what at the time was called Judea. So it's like the, mm, it's the Jewish I've been there. Okay. Yeah. I just had to get it out. Just, okay. I've been there. Well, you, I'm two for two. <laughs> wow. In this episode. <laughs> I am zero for two. I can change one of those. Yeah. Let's go to Masada. I can change two of those. <laughs> Okay, so we have one written source about the siege of Masada, and that is from a man named Josephus Flavius. I'm going to say Flavius because Flavius just makes me feel funny. Um, 
And uh, he wrote a text called The Jewish War. So Josephus Flavius was born, Joseph ben Matisyahu, into a priestly family, which explains why he was uh, a writer. Oh, I thought it was a historian. Priestly. What? I don't know. That just sounds... Joseph ben Matisyahu? No, priestly. Oh, priestly priestly family. Yeah. Oh. Um, So... He was a young leader at the outbreak of the Great Jewish Rebellion against Rome, which happened in 66 CE, and he was, uh, after that point, um, appointed governor of Galilee. So calling himself Josephus Flavius, uh, he became a Roman citizen and a successful historian. So, according to Flavius, which is now how we will refer to him, Herod the Great, heard of him? Built the fortress of Masada between 37 and 31 BCE. And uh, Herod had been made king of Judea by his Roman overlords and, quote, furnished this fortress as a refuge for himself. Oh, you didn't use my um, joke. Herod, an Idumean. And I say, oh, what Idumean by that? Oh. Come on! I didn't get, <laughs> honestly, I didn't get that joke, and I thought it was a typo. What Idumean by that? Got it now. It's a really good joke. Thanks. Okay. Um, so... Some 75 years after Herod's death, at the beginning of the revolt of the Jews against the Romans in 66 CE, a group of Jewish rebels overcame the Roman garrison of Masada. After the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 CE, they were joined by zealots and their families who had fled from Jerusalem. There they held out for three years, raiding and harassing the Romans. I have a question. Yes. In this context, and I remember... Like, yes. And I remember hearing this like on the tour because, you know, I've been there, uh, but also like in other things that discuss it, when the people talk about zealots, are they talking about like deeply religious people? Is it like a faction? Like what, zealots, it, what, it, what does that mean? They were joined by zealots and their family. Felon. Yeah. Like they're just. I think it's. It's much more of a factional thing. Um, Now Zealot has this connotation of sort of religious fanaticism. And I think it was less that and just more people interested in defending Judaism. So like faithful persons. Yeah, faithful. Faithful persons specifically willing to fight. Okay. I think is, is the connotation there. So. All right. Thank you. Oh, no. It's another Flavius. Why? Well, I mean, it was like. There were like six names yeah, this, you have. I know. Yeah. I know. I get it. Uh, I should have. I'm going to maybe I'll stick to calling him Josephus then. Anyway, in 73 CE, the Roman governor, a different Flavius, Flavius Silva, marched against Masada with the 10th Legion, auxiliary units and thousands of Jewish prisoners of war. The Romans established camps at the base of Masada, laid siege to it and uh, built a wall around uh, basically their their encampments. They then constructed a rampart of thousands of tons of stone and beaten earth against the western approaches of the fortress, and in the spring of 74 CE, moved a battering ram up the ramp and breached the wall of the fortress. Which... Not good news. Which, like, they were on the top of a plateau, just, like, in the middle of the desert, and then Mm -hmm. the Roman army was like, nah uh and they and all of the people that they had conscripted to do this labor for them just came up the built side of it yeah they yep. they built a hillside like which is just like nah. bonkers <laughs> that you're up there just like watching it happen slowly it took a long time yeah, but they're just there being like they're gonna get here eventually 
Yeah, and that is one of the more sort of poignant parts yeah. of if you sort of reimagine this and and put yourself in the position of the the zealots in the the stronghold at Masada. Um, you can imagine what that must have felt like when you were there, because you were there at Masada. I was there. Did you see the Roman, the remains of the mm-hmm. Roman encampments? Yeah. Cool. It's. I mean, it's really. It's. Um. I see why it is used in the way that it's used because it's a very easy illustration to make. Right. And so, yeah, we'll get there. Um, So once it became apparent that the 10th Legion's battering rams and catapults would succeed in breaching Masada's walls, Elazar ben Yair, the leader of the zealots decided that all the Jewish defenders should take their own lives. The alternative facing the fortress's defenders, if the Romans took the stronghold were hardly more attractive than death. And in this case, it, you know, taking their own lives would allow them to be the agents of their own fates rather than, um, you know, losing their lives to the Romans in in whatever way that entailed. So the heroic story of Masada and its dramatic end attracted many explorers to the Judean desert in attempts to locate the remains of the fortress because Josephus wrote about this and because he is writing from the perspective of he was a Roman citizen, but he was Jewish. And so he documented the siege and the the resulting um, suicide by the defenders as a person who was there and was sort of on both sides of the conflict, which worked out for him, if not anyone else. Um, so the site was identified, Masada. Uh, In 1842, but intensive excavations took place only in the mid-1960s with the help of hundreds of enthusiastic volunteers from Israel and from many foreign countries. So to many, Masada symbolizes the determination of the Jewish people to be free in their own land. So there is more than a hint of nationalism at stake here. Yeah, and it's definitely not the first or the last time that archaeology played a huge part in nationalist um, maneuvering. Yeah, ma- machination. Yeah, but but let's machination. let's let's keep going with this this Masada tip. Yeah, yeah. So just as a point of reference, Israel became a, an official state in 1948. So um, on August 11th, 1963, under the headline "quote New Siege of Herod's Fort" end quote, which is like a little on the nose, um, <laughs> the. <laughs> <laughs> the observer like the the israeli observer i believe um published an appeal for international volunteers to join the excavation of masada interested parties had to be available for a minimum of two weeks fund their own travel to and from israel be prepared for harsh conditions and apply in writing to p.o box 7041 jerusalem that's still how a bunch of digs are in israel like that are um, they put out a call. No, the like, ones. Hey. So I'm saying in Israel because these are the ones that are done through like um, Bible colleges and oh, things yeah, yeah, where yeah. it's mm-hmm. where they do they call for volunteers because they're people who want to excavate in the Holy Land, and right. and so they'll be like, you got to be free for this amount of time. You and it's like be prepared, pay your own, pay way. Your own way. It's gonna be hard, and send <laughs> us an email. Yeah, and also like it's. I was looking at those and I'm like. Wow, because it, it they they treat it completely differently than like field schools and things at 
in other places do where they right rather than the goal being archaeological praxis the goal is let's uncover this thing yeah and like it, and it's like um it's an exercise in faith like it's a way of yeah of like exercise sure. yeah so it's the it's the same like like yeah, that's yeah. just really like really it, wild to me that this might actually be how more excavations were in the 60s but excavations <laughs> like that are still like biblically motivated are still like this yeah and this is the place for it yeah so um so this is a quote from a man named uh yigael yadin which he was the former israeli military chief of staff but then um devoted his career to archaeology and was one of the the driving forces of the Masada dig, actually the driving force of the Masada dig. So he says, one of the greatest surprises and delights of the enterprise long before we had put scoop to rubble was the response. We were flooded with applications. I also just really like the the phrase put putting scoop to rubble. Yeah. That'll be um our well tour put. name. Oh man, that delights me. <laughs> Um, almost 10,000 people responded to the appeal published in The Observer. Many were turned away oh? by overwhelmed organizers. Many. Many. They took 925. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea. I was, no, oh, oh, man, I the joke didn't work. From some- I, no, ah, I left a zero off. I was like 9,925. The idea would be like, Turning I, away I 75 it. people is a lot of people, but te- never mind. You can cut all of this out. It's terrible. Why would I cut that out? <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't read. By mid-October, the first batch assembled at the desert town of Arad to be taken by truck to the base of the majestic 2,000-year-old clifftop fortress that was waiting to be uncovered. Well, and then they had to climb it. it. Yeah. What? <laughs> well, at least, at least they didn't come to, with battering rams. Um, at the time, it was, and probably still actually, it was the biggest archaeological dig in the world. Masada had become the magnificent fortified home of Herod the Great, built on cliffs overlooking the Dead Sea, which in itself was an extraordinary feat of architecture, construction, and engineering. The story of the heroic resistance at Masada and the choice of the zealots, uh, choice by the zealots of death over enslavement, became a powerful symbol in the nascent state of Israel. Um, and then excavations stopped in Masada uh, in 2006, but they have since resumed in 2017 with a project led by a team from Tel Aviv University. And so um, it's actually really neat how the archaeologists um, came up with the idea for this new excavation project, specifically at King Herod's palace slash fortress. Um, in 1924, a British pilot took a series of aerial photographs of Masada from 4,500 feet up in the air. He was in a plane at the time. Oh! (laughs) The images were preserved in glass negatives and kept at the Institute of Archaeology at University College London. When a researcher named Guy Stiebel was examining these images a few years ago, he noticed next to the Byzantine church an oblong shape that seemed to be covering a subterranean structure, something that couldn't be seen on the ground at the site at the time. As it turns out, not knowing that anything was there, the Israeli Nature and Parks Authority had covered this structure around 45 years ago, providing an excellent candidate for excavation because it was essentially protected for all that time. The fortress complex is massive, and archaeologists have uncovered many parts of it, such as King Herod's residential palace, a large storehouse complex, a bathhouse, a synagogue, and what may have been Herod's throne room. Most relevant to us right now, though, is the material found in the stronghold of the zealots, where the actual sort of, I want to say sit-in, but that's not right. 
where the where the occupation where the waited out yeah where the occupation where the the zealots waited out the roman siege happened um among the many small finds of artifacts mostly from the zealots and their occupation were pottery and stone vessels weapons mainly arrowheads remnants of textiles and of foodstuffs preserved in the dry desert climate um, also hundreds of pottery sherds some with hebrew lettering coins and shekels of special interest among the pot sherds of amphora used for the importation of wine from rome which was inscribed with the name c Sentius saturninus consul for the year 19 bce A good year so, yay dates um and there's one uh of these pot sherds bearing the inscription to herod king of the jews sent somebody sent him some wine that's nice it's a nice gift and now I have King Herod's song from Jesus Christ Superstar stuck in my head forever. That's not a problem I'll ever have. Nope. Don't. I wouldn't. I was in that in high school. Ha! Shut up. Several <laughs> hordes of bronze coins and dozens of silver shekels and half shekels had been hidden by the zealots. Um, a half shekel? No, it's a shek. A hay shekel. A hay shekel. What? A hay shekel, governor. Hello. Hello. Okay. Can you spare a hay shekel? <laughs> That's terrible. This isn't funny. This is not a really, funny story. It's really not. I'm, I'm reacting. <laughs> oh, this is God. my coping mechanism. I know. Okay. Mine is just to cry. So the, the shekalim, which is how you pluralize that particular word in Hebrew, were found in superb condition and represent all the years of the revolt. Wow. From year one to the very rare year five, all 70 CE, oh. when the temple was destroyed. I can see why that one's not around much. In the area yeah. in front of the northern palace, 11 small astraka, which are... Uh, Pieces of pottery with things written on them. So 11 small astraka were uncovered, each bearing a single name. One reads Ben Yair and could be short for Eleazar Ben Yair, the commander of the fortress. It has been suggested that the other 10 names are those of the men chosen by Lot to kill the others and then themselves, as recounted by Josephus. So in his history of the the revolt at Masada, um, Josephus recounts that the men drew lots to figure out who would um, end the lives of... So not everyone was asked to end their own life. It was uh, a group of people who were tasked with um, killing their Confederates and then themselves. So there was also evidence of a great fire that was found everywhere. So evidence of burning, burned material, but also um, charcoal and ash deposits. The fire was probably set by the last of the zealots, Josephus wrote that everything was burned except the food stores to let the Romans know that it was not hunger that led the defenders to suicide, which is powerful. Yeah. 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 And it's a way of um, reclaiming the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so it's a, um, yeah. And so it's, so as I said, like, this is something that I get why it is it has the importance that it has and mm -hmm. it's used to the ends that it is yeah. and um, has the role that it has in military training in, in Israel today. Um, I get it. Yeah. And far be it from, you know, I, I am Jewish. And so I sort of feel the, the burden of, of culture to, to respond a certain way to this story. But I also have the mindset of, an archaeologist who you know i can view the the past with some sense of detachment but it's tough for this one well and i think that um i don't think that the past should be viewed with detachment that's part of like what we do here is to attach people to the past 
I think that stories like this that have a uh, a resonance with living communities of like so like the first story has a resonance with me yeah. and like my community and this one has a resonance with you um but with each of us not necessarily identifying with that other community we still see this like mutual there 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 is something there and i think that that is what's important about this stuff because if you find something that has a significance to you it makes it that much easier to see how when you're looking at things that happened in prehistory to communities that there aren't people that have a connection to that that have um that kind of thread but you you have that that empathy there right and I, you can hold that i sort of want to make clear i don't mean detachment from empathy and with the humanity of the situation i just mean detachment from any sort of political or or sort of state affiliations well, or or just like even like stakes like yeah. you don't have like that's yeah. what i'm saying like if you find something that have that you have a stake in that you are a stakeholder for um it makes it all the easier to see how stakeholders existed like with right. yeah like when you're doing research with um with like neanderthals and like neanderthal populations there are stakes you are not like there were stakeholders like you work with them because they were humans mm -hmm. and so you don't you don't have to so stories like this remind us these were of people. that these were people with an attachment to the space and the things that happened in it um and so i really like that those were our first two stories because they're very important and very important in um informing narratives uh, along many axes today yeah, and, and actually, so, that leads really nicely into the next story because it has to do it's again. Almost like I planned it. <laughs> wow, you're really good at this podcasting thing. Uh -huh. Which it it has to do with actually the next two stories have to do with sort of using archaeology to recreate or reclaim narratives. Yeah. So, let's head to the islands. Oh God, I wish. But you know, uh, this well, is very I mean, not this, yeah, not this one at this time. That would not be yeah, a safe this... place to be. But boy, it would nope. be. So okay, we're going go to 1733 CE, um, and the 1733 slave rebellion at St. John's, or is it Sengens? It's not Sengens because it was um, in the Danish West Indies, so oh. it was actually St. Jan. <laughs> okay, so St. John's in the Virgin Islands. Um, which, well, so St. John in the Danish West Indies, yeah, well. uh, which is now St. John, the United States Virgin Islands. Mm. So we own them now. Mm. In 1733, <laughs> there was a, um, what is described as a slave insurrection um, that began on November 23rd when 150 enslaved African people from Akwamu, which is um, today is in the uh, it's in the present day state of Ghana uh, revolted against the uh, people who enslaved them and the managers of the island's plantations. So lasting several months into August, 1734, the slave rebellion was one of the earliest and longest slave result revolts in the Americas. The Aquamu slaves captured the fort in Coral Bay and took control of most of the island. 
They intended to rescue crop production. No, Re- sorry. Resume. Jeez, I can't read. <laughs> uh, they it was like rescue those crops. <laughs> uh, they intended to resume crop production under their own control and use Africans of other tribes as slave labor. Yep. Um, so uh, drawing from a dissertation by Holly Catherine Norton. Yes. Um, Thank you, Holly. I don't. I don't know but, Holly, but, but not our Holly. No, no, a different, friend of not different. friend of the show Holly. Maybe future friend of the show Holly. Absolutely. Um, so Norton writes, uh, referred to by many local intellectuals as the quote first successful slave rebellion. End quote. The story has been captivatingly related in a colorfully p- painted and passionately told for folkloric tale in John Anderson's historical novel *Night of the Silent Drums* from 1975. This recreation of history now shapes much of the currently known history of the event and its aftermath. Hence, what is undoubtedly a significant historical event is best known not so much from the archival records, accounts by firsthand observers and writers of the era, or the material record defined within the boundaries of documented places in which actions took place, but from the pages of this richly fabricated novel. Yep. So, um... So in we're, the we're work, no longer quoting now. I, yeah. <laughs> so, so in the work that um, informed the dissertation written by Norton, um, she wanted to test that richly fabricated novel um, against the archaeological record of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and she did so using GIS spatial mapping. So GIS is back. It's trending this episode. And it stands for Geographic Information Systems. And it is basically any number of computer programs or platforms that allow researchers to analyze and present a variety of types of spatial data, much like Google Maps. Yeah, that Google uses GIS. Maps is a GIS system. Yep. Yeah. Um, specific locations have an X, a Y, and a Z coordinate that can be recorded digitally. So you know where they are in all three dimensions. Mm-hmm. But not the fourth one. Actually, time. well, you can track things in Google Maps over time, and you can record time-designated things in GIS. So I guess X, well, Y, Z, and the other one. <laughs> What's the coordinate for time? Q? Let's call it Q. What? I don't know. It's probably something Greek. Moo. <laughs> um, so, um. In using JS, you can record things like the topography of the landscape, the paths of water waves, or even movements of people over time in terms of Q. Um, <laughs> you can also record things called view sheds. It's very cool. A view shed is not a small oh geez. A view shed is not a small building with a window full of lovely scenery. Thank you, Anna. Um, I it wrote is the a G- joke. <laughs> <laughs> I read your joke. Didn't read my joke. Because I didn't. Did you mean? Oh. Um, so a view shed is actually the geographic area that is visible from a given location. So if you were standing at the top of a nice little hill, your view shed would be everything you could see around you. Everything the light touches, et cetera, et cetera. Lion Simba, King. Simba, Lion King, Mufasa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Norton used view shed analysis based on historical records of plantation locations before and after the slave revolt to gain some really cool insights. So where archaeological evidence has provided the most insight into their sites. Wow. um, Yeah. Into the processes of events um, is in the re-articulation of structures. Buildings moving around. It was just like dissertation language. I felt like I should. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Right. The 1733 St. John Slave Rebellion was an event that caused a shift in how the landscape was conceived of by residents of the island. The plantocracy. <laughs> that was the word used, like the the planters in charge. Like the Man. Not like rule by could you, your potted plants. <laughs> could you imagine? Gosh. What? A plantocracy? Like an actual yeah. living green thing plantocracy? I think plants should vote. I think you're right. <laughs> so the plantocracy in reacting to the event transformed the landscape. What is a plantocracy? <laughs> I just said it's the so like the people who own and manage the plantations are the ones in charge. That's the plantocracy. A plant it should be like plantationocracy, I guess. I hate that word. No, it's not I mm, That's not a good word. I didn't make it up. So it's like so like okay. So like the, the establishment yeah so like man. but like the the people who had the power to begin with the people who had power and agency the white people yeah okay <laughs> you're not wrong um okay so okay so the plantation owners and managers in reacting to the event transformed the landscape there were various scales of reordering that occurred in the danish west indies in the wake of the rebellion Oh, I, oh, okay. Okay. So they did this because I was like, I'm learning with us. So they, I'm sorry. This doesn't make sense. <laughs> no, I, know. I was reading this as if like plantocracy was some term referring to like growth patterns or something. No, of, no, no, no. So, okay. So they, but they changed it because they were trying to prevent future insurrection. Correct. So it was an intentional rearticulation of structures. Twice. But, but it was, but it was done to keep the to keep the the people that were enslaved from organizing and yeah. so that was that was the second reorganization so after okay. the rebellion the formerly enslaved africans they did some changing of the landscape um some chose to remain there not everybody did and then once the rebellion had sort of been quashed by um military coming in again then the second reorganization took place by the okay the europeans to yeah to do things to prevent future insurrection okay all right thank you mm -hmm. just one little word throw off the whole thing blandocracy okay i'm gonna leave all that in great no that's fine <laughs> that's that's fine we're all about learning <laughs> yeah i only know what i know the rebellion resulted in the movement of 292 people. And these movements included the death of numerous individuals, both free people and enslaved people, the movement of planters and free residents off the island, and to a lesser extent, the movement of the movement off island of enslaved people not participating in the rebellion. Yeah. And so after the rebellion, some planters took the opportunity to relocate to the newly acquired St. Croix. And just so I'm super clear here, planters are people running plantations. Correct. Members of the plantocracy. Correct. Thank you. Great. Woof. Those who did remain or who immigrated to the island after the revolt uh, conceived of new ways to manipulate the landscape. It's only after the rebellion that planters begin to incorporate viewsheds into their conception of the environment. Several planters moved plantation complexes to higher elevations where there was increased ability to surveil their own property 
while also having a neighbor or two within their viewshed. The social focus of the island also shifted from the somewhat isolated Coral Bay to the more populous Cruise Bay. Uh, this geographic repositioning was not an immediate reaction to the slave rebellion, however. The planters were still constrained by their property ba- boundaries as well as with balancing the needs for their security against the logistics of agriculture in such a mountainous region. As plantations were consolidated in various waves throughout the remainder of the 18th century, we see subsequent, subsequent planters attempting to carry out more ideal building practices that more closely reflected idealized perceptions of both surveillance and security. Yeah, and so that's what you could see from the archaeological record is that this slave rebellion had a significant impact on the white planters who realized all of a sudden, uh-oh, this is a possibility. And yeah. so they changed their landscape to to fit that new sort of worldview. Yeah, no that's really that's really interesting. Yeah. Really, I'm going to scroll to the point where I don't see plantocracy, which is bolded and highlighted. Because it was... Get that out of my view, Shed. Because it was such Um, a weird word. I was just like, that's a thing? I've never heard that before. Well, it's a little out of our respective wheelhouses. It's like the next island over from our wheelhouses. I guess. But like, I, I mean, I learned about the agricultural economy of the American South. Uh, through the mid 19th century yeah you'd think that would come up you don't really hear the word plantocracy bandied around there i don't know yeah okay we'll have to talk to holly oh so moving on from the archaeology of rebellion and protest to archaeology as protest oh man i love this story (laughs) i love it so much it's very good so contemporary beninese artist thierry usu uh has a multimedia (laughs) salut thierry uh, so he has a multimedia installation called Impossible is Nothing. And as far as I know, it was on display in Berlin. And I tried to find where it was. Looking up Impossible is Nothing just resulted in a lot of Google Especially hits. Especially in for, Berlin. Well, it just <laughs> resulted in a lot of Google hits for Nothing is Impossible. And it's like, Google, no. It's not Google's what I like, said. You doing okay? <laughs> um So the installation reproduces a 2016 archaeological dig in southern Benin. Currently on show somewhere in Berlin, I guess. It features (laughs) video documentation of the excavation projected alongside the objects unearthed. Potsherds, the blades of an axe and a hoe, two gongs, a water jug, an empty gin bottle, and the 19th century royal throne of King Behanzin, the last ruler of the kingdom of Dahomey. Which is weird, because that throne has been in possession of the French state ever since the early 1890s, when Behanzin was defeated and Dahomey, which is present-day Benin, was colonized. Today, it sits in the stores of France's ethnographic treasure trove, the Musée du Quai Branly Jacques Chirac. Along with up to 6,000 other artifacts, it has, in recent years, been the object of a dogged mission by the Beninese government, the first of its kind to be instigated by a former African colony, to see it brought home. So, <laughs> I wish everybody could see Amber's face right now. I love right this now. story so much! <laughs> Usu's dig was a performance, and the throne was, of course, a fake. He came across it after visiting his friend, sculptor uh, Elias Boko, who was making replicas of Vanzin's throne. So, just a description of the throne. It stands 77 centimeters tall. It's made from a single Iroko tree trunk, which is carved into a flattened U-shape 
you know, the seat. And, and that seat is atop a sculpted rectangular base set on a plinth three steps high. So when Usu brought Boko's replica back um, to Alada, which is where this quote dig took place, he buried it along with other objects in a secret pit just shy of one square meter wide. He then invited students from the University of Abome Kalavi to excavate it, the local university. Because the area they sifted through was larger than Uso's original pit, they unearthed more items than he planted. In other words, true archaeological finds, which was always part of his plan. So here's a quote from Uso. The location I chose could well be part of Beninese heritage, but it's not. No one thinks about that. This was partly an invitation for people to open their eyes to our cultural values. End quote. Certainly, the students' field reports, which are displayed alongside the excavation videos and objects, convey the excitement of novice minds getting a taste of something new. Um, and you know, there was one quote from um, one of the students. Several of us had no urge to go home upon the dig's completion, which, like, I get it. Using actual archaeology students rather than fellow artists in on the act brought its own set of challenges, however. Despite the fact that they were to be fully briefed on the project's artistic purpose, a controversy ensued. The university got involved. The head of the archaeology department demanded that Usu publicly agree to not exhibit the throne as the original, which he did. Um, Usu said, quote, it wasn't ever my intention to, I'm editorializing, but to exhibit the throne as a real one. Um, for me, it was a contemporary experiment. As an artwork, it is authentic, end quote. In combining the made-up, the replica throne, with the factual, the real archaeological finds, the impossible-is-nothing installation treats history itself as something to be added to and refashioned at will, a kind of live conservation, and repositioning the history of African art, and not to mention taking a little dig at the French, like, give us our stuff back, is something that Usu and many others hope to achieve. And that's so good. It's so good. I love it so uh, much. Mm. Like, Oh, it's so, oh man, it's so good. It's so smart. I love art <laughs> and it's just like, oh man, it's uh, so, good. so good. And the school was like so embarrassed and just like, good. I yeah. Mean, well, good. Like, yeah, no, like, mm, but it's mm. like, art in, in a long durée sense. What? Good. Bien. Bien. <laughs> so, and this is, we're wrapping it up now, right? Yes. yes. This, this, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Last up. This one's nice. I mean, well, we're sticking. This is a fun. This is a fun fact. It is a like, fun fact in the midst of terrible atrocities. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um. So. So we have archaeology as protest. Now we have archaeologist in protest. Mm-hmm. Listeners. I want you to pull up a picture in your mind. You probably have it already there. Um, it's an iconic image, one that likely exists somewhere back there in your brain. Um, if not, just do a quick Google. It's a photo. There's also video footage taken on June 4th, 1989 of a young man with two plastic shopping bags in his hands standing in front of a row of tanks in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, China. Um, and just uh, there's content warning. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, violence and uh, some, atrocities some committed real by the human state. rights violations. Yeah. So that 
that happened in Tiananmen Square in Beijing um, is remembered in China more euphemistically as the June 4th incident. Mm. Um, The events of that day are among the bloodiest in modern political history. Hundreds of civilians were killed by the 200,000 strong People's Liberation Army in a brutal crackdown on student pro-democracy protesters that sent shockwaves around the world. One million Chinese youth had occupied the famous landmark to stage hunger strikes and call for an end to state corruption, greater transparency, and increased civil and increased civil liberties following the death of the reform-minded party leader Hu Yaobang on April 15th. The demonstrations in Tiananmen Square were proving an embarrassment to the Chinese government ahead of the visit of Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev, whose arrival would pull China into the global media spotlight, hence the sudden urgency to clear the streets. Um, After initially trying to use nonviolent methods to disperse the demonstrators and then telling them they had one hour in which to leave, members of the 27th Group Army opened fire on the crowd with automatic rifles just five minutes later. Snipers rained down bullets from rooftops, troops bayoneted the injured, and armored personnel carriers rolled in, many of which ran over students that had linked arms to form human chains. The bodies were cleared away by bulldozers for incineration and blood was hosed into the gutters. China record, China officially recorded the number of the dead as no more than 300, while the Chinese Red Cross on the ground said it was more like 2,700. But Sir Alan Donald, Britain's ambassador to China at the time, said the death toll was much higher. This extraordinary moment was captured by five foreign press photographers from a ho- from hotel back balconies looking down on the horrors below. Stuart Franklin's version appeared in Time and Life, Time and Life magazines after. Sorry, it's not Time and Life magazine. <laughs> yeah, <it's> just... <laughs> sorry. Stuart Stuart Franklin's version appeared in Time and Life. Uh, two the, magazines. The magazine after after the roll of film was smuggled out of China inside a box of tea. Charlie Cole, whose picture won the 1990 World Press Photo of the Year, only managed to get his film get his film out after concealing it inside a toilet when the authorities raided his room, forcing him to surrender a dummy roll and sign a confession that he had taken photographs in contravention of martial law. The Tank Man, um, from that image I asked you to conjure before giving you all those other images in your mind, um, the Tank Man has been identified as 19-year-old archaeology student uh, Wang Weilin, but his fate remains unknown. General Secretary Zhang Zemin denied any knowledge of his arrest, but insisted he would not have been run over or subsequently executed. Some believe he escaped to Taiwan. Wherever he is now, we remember and celebrate our fellow archaeologist. Yes, we do. So we've we've run the full gamut from protests being recorded by archaeologists to archaeology as a form of protest and an archaeologist protesting. There you go. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you again to Lisa for sponsoring it. And congratulations again to Kara. We really hope you enjoyed listening. And remember, you too can dedicate an episode to a loved one or to yourself. You're worth it. Yeah. To do that, you can go to paypal.me slash the dirt podcast. And for a one-time $25 donation, we will research and put out an episode on the topic that you include in the PayPal notes section. Although... Uh, some conditions do apply. Or you can just keep enjoying the show and let us figure out the topics. Um, And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your pod fix. Um, You can also uh, do us a real solid by leaving us reviews and ratings on any of those platforms. Or if you find other platforms, or if you found platforms. Yeah. And 
upon founding them, talk about us. Yeah. And you can find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. All of that is together on our website, thedirtpod.com. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do it at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And um, over on our Patreon, uh, we put out extra bonus content, extra shows, some videos. You can see all those faces I was making. Oh, they were, uh, they were great faces. <laughs> um, and you can get access to that sweet, sweet, sweet extra stuff for as little as a dollar a month over at, does Patreon take increments less than a dollar? A hay dollar? Yeah, you could give us a, a hay shekel. That'd be a couple bucks. Um, no. Bubba. No. Yeah, I, don't I don't know. Give us a dollar. <laughs> Patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Thank you all for listening. We will be back with you very soon. We love you. Bye. 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 Good goodbye. Farewell. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.